again, Give Back Gang, and welcome to the Give Back Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Friedman. My guest today is the program director of an amazing youth organization in Philadelphia called the Anderson Monarchs. As we will today, and in all Give Back Sports episodes, we'll learn how our guests have parlayed athletic accolades or influence within the world of sports into an opportunity to uplift the community around them. Remember, if you have any questions for our wonderful guests, please post them on our social media channels. And now, coming to you live from South Philly, Mr. Steve Bandura. Hey, Steve. Hey, how are you? I'm doing very well, man. Thank you for joining us on this beautiful morning. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to tell everybody about our program. So thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, I mean, the reason that we're talking is because I think that your program deserves to be talked about. So let's start backtracking immediately. You grew up in Philadelphia. What do you remember about South Philly and how has it changed since your childhood? Well, I actually grew up in Northeast Philadelphia. Um, Our program runs out of South Philadelphia, but when Philadelphia is a very diverse city, but it's really still pretty segregated. And even more back then when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s. So where I grew up was the Irish Catholic working class, blue collar, you know, Irish bar on every corner kind of neighborhood, um, 100% white. Um, South Philly to us, South Philly was the Italian neighborhood that was the Italian restaurants that was the mafia, that kind of vibe. And that's the way we thought of South Philly. Um, to us, like I, we never even really learned about any African-American communities in South Philly or in North Philadelphia. We just weren't educated on anything like that. We lived in our little bubble world in Northeast and we believed the stereotypes about every other neighborhood. That's the way it was. There were there was no internet or social media or anything like that. Really no chance of exposure. Uh, without actually getting out of your little bubble. So how did you get out of the bubble? Was it through playing sports as a kid? No, I mean, our sports programs were pretty much at that time, you know, they were all just community teams and we were pretty much self-contained in Northeast Philadelphia. Really, my world kind of opened up when I went to community college after high school. And, you know, I started meeting and seeing a lot of people that weren't like me. And like growing up, People I know, my parents, friends, you know, they might have met 10 African-Americans in their lifetime and they may have worked with them or, or whatever. It just so happens that all 10 of those were the exception to the rule. You know, I got to community college and I was like, everyone I met was the exception to the rule that I was taught growing up. Anything about anybody else or any other cultures or neighborhoods is taught to us by pretty much like the older guys in the neighborhood. You know, we just believed it because they were older. They must know. Right. But (laughs) they really did it. So, yeah, that was my first exposure going away to community college. And then I went to Westchester University. So just meeting people from getting out of my comfort zone, getting out of my bubble, meeting people that were different than I am from different backgrounds. Um, And then through a friend from college, I had been working in sales and marketing after college. And, you know, I. It was an easy job. It was, it was good money. I had a company car and secretary and all that, and I hated every minute of it. You know, I would get up every morning, and I would sit on the edge of the bed and think, "Oh, what am I going to do? I already used up all my personal days and vacation days." What am? And uh, that's just the way I felt. Like I really felt like it was just meaningless. You know, like you know, if I died today, some other salesperson would be in my chair before it even got cold. You know, and the company would never miss a beat. No one would ever miss. And then I got a call from a friend from college. She was working for a bank in Center City, Philadelphia, and her boss wanted to try to start some programming at a, a rec center uh, within walking distance of Center City. And he found this place in South Philly, Marion Anderson Rec Center. And they had an old boxing gym in there that hadn't been used for a long time. And he was looking for somebody to run a boxing program. And I fought for a couple of years in college. So my friend called me and, you know, I really wasn't thrilled about it, but I kind of did it more as a favor to her and to make her look good to her boss. And And I got down there and again, it was just a whole new world to me. Is The neighborhood I was in where the recreation center is in was a starkly working class um, African-American neighborhood, kind of on the fringe of Center City. And it's changed a lot 
since then, I've been there for 30 years, but in the past 15 years, it's gentrified. You know, the same kind of gentrification is going on in a lot of places like Harlem and, and D.C. and all across the country. Um, it's close to center city, so people move in, push the other people out. Mm-hmm. And there, there are a lot of issues with gentrification that, you know, really don't get addressed, I, I don't think. Uh, and I've seen it uh, firsthand knowledge of it been lived through it uh in that community seeing the ups seeing the downs you know positives and negatives but yeah that was my awakening really so it sounds like sylvester stallone wasn't available so they got steve bandura yeah right (laughs) (laughs) i was thinking you know 30 years ago rocky was about 30 years ago wasn't it Uh, it was actually more like it was 76 i think 77 Yeah, so, I mean, Rocky 12, I think, came out about then. <laughs> uh, but no, Rocky was, you know, has always been a big part of, if you go today, you could go to the art museum and, and next to the art museum, there's a Rocky statue there from the movie from Rocky 3, yeah. and there'll be a line there all day of people waiting to take your picture with it. So, yeah, Rocky's, Rocky's still a big part of the community here in Philadelphia. That's right. Have you seen the movies uh, Creed? Yes, I have. I have. You think um, you do the series justice? Yeah, I think it's good. I think, you know, Michael B. Jordan's excellent in that role. I, um, Sly's still doing it. I think he's coming out with a number, another Rambo soon. He's like, he's 70 years old now, so I don't yeah. know. Well, you know, it's funny because I was, I watched that preview and at first I was like, oh, he's washed up. I can't believe he's doing another Rambo. But then I looked back at the old Rambo and he's really just grunting and shooting guns anyway. Yeah. Yeah, anybody can shoot, you know. Yeah, yeah, he'll be fine. (laughs) Well, I want to dive into the Anderson Monarch story because that's something that you orchestrated. It's something that you should be very proud of, and it's something that gained a lot of media attention over the last five years or so. I remember the Taney Dragons playing in the 2014 Little League World Series. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of the first time that the organization really got the recognition that was due. So yeah, well, thanks, thanks to one little girl in particular. Yeah, so that the Taney Dragons team, there were eight kids on that team that were from the Anderson Monarchs program. Um, just to explain, Taney is a Center City, Philadelphia in-house baseball basketball program it's really well run they have tons of kids but the demographic historically for taney has been center city professionals the kids of like center city professionals and they're strictly in-house up through 12 years old um and we are kind of the across the tracks we were the across the tracks travel program and we would get some crossover of our guys over to taney and taney to our guys and you know we would do camps and i met a lot of kids taney kids through our camps for that 20, you know, a few of our kids had already been playing Taney as well as our travel program. But for that 2014 season, we had most of our kids sign up for Taney, join Taney organization and play through their in-house league that year. And, and then they were eligible for the, for the all-star team at the end. And a lot of them were selected. But yeah, that's how we got, you know, hooked up with, with uh, Taney baseball. Okay. And then Independent of Taney, obviously, the program that you have built is something that deserves national attention in and of itself, you know, exclusive of whatever we saw on the field at the Little League World Series. You guys were doing amazing things. Like, the first thing that I heard about you and the organization was that you were holding Friday night civil rights history lessons. Yeah, that was down the road a piece. Um, That was in 2015. 15 when we did that but just to, to step back when I started with the boxing program I was getting a lot of kids a lot of kids come out for boxing and you know they would be in there and they would do the workouts and their hearts really weren't into it like not enough where I would actually put them in the ring for a bout and I really couldn't figure it out and finally it hit me that you know when I realized there were this was the only thing going on in the neighborhood and that's why kids were coming there were you know where I grew up I could walk to five or six different they were called boys clubs back then, sports organizations that I could play for. 
And I assumed always, you know, because I grew up in my little bubble where I assumed every kid had those opportunities and, you know, and certain kids just didn't take advantage of those opportunities. That's what we were taught. And, but while after being down there a while, I realized there was nothing else for the kids in that neighborhood. There were no travel programs. There were no in-house programs. There was absolutely nothing. Um, and that's why the kids were coming around. So Mike Wharton be the person who had my friend's boss who wanted to start this organization and started doing some soccer and baseball. But, you know, we were working with kids that were, you know, 13 years old, 12, 13 years old. And they would set up games against teams from Northeast Philadelphia, where I grew up, where the majority of the sports established sports organizations are. And, you know, the kids would get hammered every game, you know, and, and people were saying, well, it's, you know, it's good. You're keeping them off the streets and, you know, it's really not their game anyway. And all this BS and not looking at the fact that our kids are starting to play at age 12 while your kids started at age five in T-ball and they started playing catch with dad at three years old. From a development standpoint, it's not even fair to compare those two. So in 1993, the company I was working for shut down and went out of business and I got, was offered a couple of other positions, but I turned them down and I actually went on unemployment on purpose so I could see what I could build from the ground up full time. And I went out in the first year, we had like 165 to eight-year-old kids that we recruited from the local schools. And we started the Jackie Robinson Baseball League. I named all the teams after Negro League teams, um, gave every kid a kid's book called Jackie Robinson and the Story of All Black Baseball. And every kid had to do a book report on that. And it was just a little above their reading level. So the parents had to read the book to them. So the parents, a lot of the parents learned about it too, because this neighborhood in particular, I would hear from old timers in the neighborhood about how the baseball used to be at Marion Anderson. Well, it wasn't called Marion Anderson Rec Center back then. It was called McCoach Playground. Back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, it was such a, you know, baseball was king back then. It was king everywhere. It was king in the suburbs. It was king in the rural areas, in the cities. Everybody played baseball. And guy was telling me, one of the old timers was telling me that on Sundays, this playground was a hotbed for black baseball. And every Sunday there'd be games and there people would be 10 deep around the field and in their Sunday, you know, going to church clothing. And, you know, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure, you know, he's embellished a little bit over the years. His memory is. And then it wasn't like within the last couple of years, somebody sent me a picture they found in this old book, this archive picture of McCoach playground from 1921. And it was exactly the way that this guy pictured, like, talked about it. It had to be a thousand people in suit and tie and fedoras lined around the entire field watching a game going on. And it was just amazing. But what had happened, and there are a lot of reasons for this, baseball disappeared for a generation and almost two generations in a lot of these neighborhoods. So now you don't have parents that played the game, so they don't have any way of teaching it. They don't really know the value of team sports because there weren't any for them. You know, like I said, there are a lot of reasons behind that. So I decided let's connect the kids and the parents with the history of baseball. So they feel like they have some, take some ownership in it. Like this is their game. And, and from there we had soccer as well. And then later on we added basketball. And in 1995, I picked my first Monarchs team out of that Jackie Robinson league. And that's what we do. We try to cast a wide net at the five to seven year old age group. And then we identify the kids that show potential and then we'll make them a travel team, the Anderson Monarchs travel team. Needless to say, Jackie Robinson, especially in the beginning was a huge role model for us because we were the first African-American team to ever play in the top leagues in our city. That's 50 years after Jackie Robinson. We integrated the city leagues. And again, there are a lot of reasons for that, but we were the first, so Jackie was our role model. And then in 1997, MLB was celebrating the 50th anniversary of Jackie Robinson from 1947. And that's when they retired his number across baseball and every park celebrated him. And Negro League teams used to barnstorm to make money. And they would get in old buses and travel around the country playing games, two, three games a day, you know, wherever they can make money in, in their off season and, and continue to play the game they love. So it's a long story, but we, I decided I woke up one morning. I still remember I woke up. It was in February of that year. I woke up with the idea, I should take these guys on a barnstorming tour out to the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City. And from there, it just kind of 
I mean, again, this is pre-internet. So everything we're doing is done through letters, you know, actual typed letters on a typewriter and, and phone calls. And we got it organized. And we also wound up with this 1947 bus, authentic, all authentic interior, 1947 bus. And we barnstormed for 13 days out to the Negro Leagues Museum and back. And in the beginning, nobody was really interested in the story except Claire Smith from the New York Times. Claire Smith was just two years ago, won the, the Taylor Spink Award. She was inducted into the Hall of Fame in the writer's wing of the Hall of Fame. She was the first African-American beat writer, baseball writer. She was the first woman beat writer, period. Um, she covered the Yankees. So she actually went on the tour for us for a few days and wrote a couple articles this week and baseball picked up on it. And remember that was the highlight show back then. There, there yeah. weren't nightly highlights on ESPN. So it got a lot of publicity and not compared to 2015, but that was something we did. That, those barnstorming tours were something that continued. We've done four of them. Obviously they're really expensive to do one of those. And it's almost impossible to raise that kind of money every year for the same event. But over the years we've done them and they've had different themes, tribute to Jackie Robinson in the Negro leagues. We did in 2015, we did the tribute to civil rights movement because everything going on in Baltimore and Ferguson and all this, the racial and civic unrest across the country. I felt like kids were 13. They were at the right age. I wanted to give them a better understanding of what was going on, what fuels those fires, you know, there. And we got together every Friday night at the rec center for six months, studied civil rights movement, watched documentaries, read books, had discussions, watched movies about those events, studied the baseball history along that timeline as well. And then we went out on the road for 23 days in that same 1947 bus and barnstormed through the deep South, no electronics, no cell phones allowed, you know, the only electronics was my uh, laptop because I was doing a lot of all the social media posting. Right. Um, it was amazing. How did the kids feel about not having access to electronics? In 2015, it wasn't as bad as it is now. Or, you know, that phone is attached to the kids' hands now. But still, like, I think the only one that said anything was Monet. She used to be on her phone a lot, too. But after the first two hours, nobody ever mentioned it again. And... I would let the kids call home every few nights. They could call their parents on my phone when we're at the hotel at night, but that was it. In fact, the parents were the ones at first I was contemplating whether to let them, let them bring the phones with them. And then I would let them use them at night. And the parents said, no, you know, you're going to do it, do it, do it this way. And it was old school for sure. Wow. Good for them. I'm glad that they stepped up and approved that because I guarantee if you ask a sample of 10 parents right now, they say, well, They've had their cell phones since they were eight. Are you sure they're going to be okay? I need to have instant access in case something happens. You know, <laughs> It's amazing how we survived. You would have loved it. It was so cool. I mean, they were playing Uno and playing cards. Um, one of the greatest things I remember, and this just so refutes stereotypes about inner city and black kids in baseball. You know, we went up to Cooperstown when they – inducted Monet's, you know, hung Monet's jersey at the Hall of Fame, and she delivered the jersey to them. On the way home, we, we had this little school bus. It's not the 1947 bus, but we had this little school bus. And before we went left for the five-hour drive home, all the kids ran into the stores on Main Street there in Cooperstown. They all came out with stacks of baseball cards. And on the whole way home, they had a draft a mock draft. They put all the cards in and they separate them by position. They drew lots to see who picked first and what order they picked in. And I'm driving and I hear in the back, like, now Sear Jackson is now on the clock. He's got two minutes to pick in a position player and a pitcher. You know, and <laughs> by the time we're done, they all had their teams assembled. And then it was nothing but like two hours of arguing who had the best team and why and which guy led the American League in RBI. It was just such a cool thing. It just shows how much the kids embrace the game. Yeah, it's also nice to know that they could embrace each other in the absence of technology. Yeah, and that's the thing about our program. When we pick those groups of kids and we put a Monarchs team together when the kids are seven or eight years old, that group of kids stays together year round and they play travel baseball, travel soccer, travel basketball together. Whether they're great at a 
all three sports or great at one or good at a couple. It doesn't matter. We commit to those kids and it's more about building that family um, feel and atmosphere and, and giving a kid's environment where they feel like they can be themselves. And then this is the mistake. One of the many mistakes I made in the beginning was I kind of, when the kids got to high school, they kind of went their separate ways and a lot of them wound up in trouble and they, with the wrong crowd. And what I was noticing was I'd see them on the street and they would look, they seem like completely different people. But when they're around those other groups, the kids have to wear this mask and they have to act like they're tough and they have to fit in. But when you have this group that you're so comfortable with, like family, you don't feel the need to wear that mask and you can be yourself. And that's why these kids are so close. Even the kids now that are in their thirties are still super tight and they're always in contact with each other. That's really powerful. You know, I know that having a group and a support system around you is invaluable, especially when there's, for lack of a better word, temptations to kind of go astray. You know, have there been instances where you've had to speak with players or alumni of the program who have gone astray? Oh, I mean, yeah. I had one of our kids from my original Monarchs program lived with us for a couple of years. I mean, he actually moved into our home and lived with us for a couple of years and still wound up in jail later on. This is why I say like when I see all these millions of programs, they're they're bringing in money and getting donations and they they spend an hour a week with a group of kids and think they're changing the world and think they're making a difference. I mean, this kid lived in my house for two years and I'm not exactly the softest dad or big brother figure on the kids. And he still wound up with the wrong crowd. He's paid his debt and he's a dad now and he's, he's doing great and he appreciates everything and like looking back. But at that time, I did not have the structure, like his teammates weren't together through those teenage years and it wound up hurting him. And the other thing we do is we have all our young kids take, if you apply to a private school, we have a lot of really good private schools in the area. If you apply to a private school for lower school, you have to go take this like three hour test. It's like an IQ battery test. And determines whether or not they feel like you can handle the rigors of private school. And it's pretty accurate. So we have all our kids tested and the kids that test well, we work on getting them into the private schools and we work on getting them aid and sponsorships. Because once you do that, their lives are changed. If they don't have to go through public school with kids they don't know, and they get to go to this private school setting where they get all the support and the resources they need, you know, it just changes their lives, whether they play sports or not. But the good thing about these private schools is that you're required to play sports there. Mm. We've just been able to supply these schools with really good, high-character kids that have been trained and are multi-sport athletes. And so it's a win-win on both sides. That's interesting. Well, first of all, you have the kids playing three sports, regardless of where their strengths lie. That builds character in and of itself, right? Because you're kind of stepping out of your comfort zone, but you have that support system around you and it feels familiar at least. Absolutely. When these kids apply to private school, are they already graduated from your program or does that create kind of a schism in that group dynamic? No, no. There, it's We keep our groups together now through high school. And actually it's going to be beyond high school because we're going to have like a college age. We're going to keep these guys together playing you know, through their college years as well and beyond having, you know, we're forming alumni teams and things like that now that do certain tournaments. But this was the first team, this group of 18-year-olds now, which was Monet and my son's in that program. That group of kids are now 18. Half of them are off to college. The other half are seniors in high school. But this was the first group we've been able to really keep together through high school. How did you and your son get your hands on that 47 Clipper bus? Well, we got that bus in 97. My son wasn't even born yet. Uh, (laughs) It's kind of a long story, but I'll I'll give you the very short abridged version. When I was planning, I had a friend who told other friends about it. And he had a friend who was a mechanic, auto mechanic. And amazingly, he had two giant stacks of magazines called, I forget, it was like an auto collector's magazine. And he had giant stacks of them and had just thrown them all away except for two magazines he kept because there were articles in there he wanted to read. In one of those magazines that he kept 
was the only ad in the back for this 1947 bus that this guy in Connecticut was trying to sell. It was the only time he ever ran the ad. It was the only place it ever ran. And it was one of those magazines that Tom Murphy is the mechanic saved. And he didn't even know us. He never met us, didn't know us, but on his own, went up to Connecticut, contacted the guy, went up to Connecticut, looked at the bus. It had been sitting in a barn for 25 years. The guy had bought it from Warner Brothers and drove it east in 1972 and it sat in his barn he was going to refurb it you know like a lot of us have those plans that projects that we never get to it was buried in a barn tom went up like four or five times drove up to connecticut four hour drive again he didn't even know us and he's just that kind of guy he got it running we worked out an agreement to kind of rent the bus from the guy and then uh we took it out on the road we didn't have it insured until 11 p.m. the night before we left. After we had raised the money, we were ready to go, could not find anybody to insure it. And, you know, I give Progressive a shout out for insuring the bus the night before we left. Uh, and since then, I did another tour in, in 2004, just to kind of backtrack a little. I told you my guys were the first African-American team in any of the city soccer and baseball leagues in the, in the top A leagues playing against teams from the neighborhood I grew up in around there. So I kind of knew a little bit what they would face because, you know, I kind of grew up with that same playbook, but the garbage that they had to go through and hear, and a lot of it was subtle that they didn't see, but I could see was just disgusting. And in 2000, I decided to try something. I put together a new eight-year-old team, um, a few kids from our program, but it was five white, five black, five Hispanic players, from all over Philadelphia. And it was just for that reason, just to bring kids from different backgrounds and neighborhoods and cultures together on common ground and just see what happens. And we called them the Philadelphia Stars after the Philadelphia Negro League team, Philadelphia Stars. Mm -hmm. And we did tournaments. They still played for their club teams. We didn't break up the club teams. They still played for their club teams. And we would get together for tournaments and we would train in the winter and things like that. And we would do a lot of things off the baseball field, you know, like movies and events and go to games together. And, and I still remember the first meeting we had, I just called coach. We didn't have a tryout. I just called coaches I knew from around the city say, Hey, you got any kids and families that might be interested in this? And so we got the 15 together and hardly any of them knew each other. And I held the meeting and I was waiting for everybody in the lobby and directing them to the auditorium. And when everybody got there, I walked in the auditorium, there was parents and kids. And when I walked in, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. They had self-segregated. There was five Hispanic families, five white families who didn't know each other, and five black families. Wow. They had self-segregated because that's where they were comfortable. I told you that's the way Philly is. It's very segregated. Two years later, four of those families are going on vacation, renting a house together in Ocean City, Maryland, going on vacation together. Like, that's what happens through exposure. A lot of times it's not racism, it's just ignorance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, speaking from my own personal experience, that's what it was. I had no exposure, so I believed everything I was told. Unfortunately, some people will go out and see something that completely opposite of what they've been told, and they'll still believe what they've been told over what they've experienced. But that's why I wanted to bring these kids together. I wanted to give them a chance to form their own opinions based on their own life experiences. So when they hear these things later on, they'll say, hey, that doesn't really jive with, with what I've seen. So anyway, in 2004, five years later, after we put this team together, we did a, a barnstorming tour. It was 20 days on the road with these kids. And it was a tribute to Jackie Robinson and the Negro League players, their legacy, what they made possible because of them, these kids were able to travel around the country. Mm -hmm. and, we, and Mitchell and Ness, who at the time, Mitchell and Ness made all the throwback jerseys. And when throwback jerseys in the 90s and 2000s were super popular, and Mitchell and Ness, you know, benefited from that. They were the supplier of all those throwback jerseys. Right. Um, they sponsored us. Peter Capolino was the owner. On the first tour, before when they were just a sporting goods store on the corner, he gave us Negro League hats. By the time we went on our second tour, they had blown up. And he asked me, and he gave every kid a jersey. Each kid got a jersey and had to do a report on the player that their jersey represented. You know, and we called it the throwback tour. And when I told Peter that we weren't using the bus, he asked why. I said, well, the guy in Connecticut sold it to a bus company. and they won't rent it out or lease it to us. 
I said, they told me it was for sale, but that's it. And he said, how much? I said, 25,000. Peter picked up the phone and said, uh, Steve Mandor is going to be stopping by. Can you cut him a check for $27,000? And he bought the bus for us. And that's why we still own it today. That's Mitchell and Ness through their generosity. Wow. So yeah, that was our second tour. And then we did another one in 2012 and then another one in 2015. And we're, next year is the 100th anniversary of the Negro League. So we're going to do another tour next year. That's amazing. I've been to that Mitchell and Ness store in Philadelphia. The next time I go, I'm going to have to give high fives all around. That's a great story. Yeah, well, they don't. He, Peter sold the company to Adidas or Reebok, which is the same thing now. So he's, he's still an advisor, but he doesn't own the store anymore. And coincidentally, Mitchell and Ness doesn't really do any grassroots stuff anymore. Maybe not so coincidentally. They've joined, they've joined the Nikes of the world. <laughs> That's an amazing story. Obviously, it's great to understand how that bus came into your possession, how the mentality of bringing that team together, despite the fact that they came from different backgrounds, is awesome. When they were actually on those barnstorming tours, what kind of transition in their personality and, and their ball playing skills did you see? Well, the first tour we went on, for most of those kids, it was the first time they'd been out of the city. So it was a totally different experience than the 2015 team who had been playing in tournaments. And, you know, our program had evolved. So we were able to take them to national tournaments, regional tournaments. And we'd done a lot of traveling together. Mm -hmm. But that first team, that was the first time out of the city. And I think we finished like 500 on that trip, playing mostly inner city teams. Now, by 2015, we mixed it up sort of like what Negro league teams did when they barnstormed, you know, we would play in a really, I don't know, a really nice college field. And next time we would play in a rundown inner city field and, and it varied. And I think we were undefeated in that 2015 tour. But to me, the goal has always been to have the show that the kids can compete winning championships and things like that is a bonus, but just showing that they can compete. And in the beginning, that was different than it is now. In the beginning, we had to win or there was, we weren't legitimate in the eyes of the people with all the stereotypes. It wasn't enough that we were just playing and kind of competing. We had to win to open their eyes. You know, when we first started our first year, we didn't do very well and everybody was all patronizing, you know, oh, that's great. And then when we started winning, the whole attitudes of the, the fans and the parents of the other teams kind of changed quickly. Right. right. It was like at first we were visiting in the second, you know, when we started winning, it was like, well, we moved next door now. We we're in there stepping on their toes, and, and a lot of people didn't like that. Yeah. But so, just to show that we could compete um, was the goal from day one, you know, because nobody believed that these kids could compete in, those, in that city A-League. And if I can veer off from that a little bit, just to tell you, this 2015 group, we have 14 kids from that group either playing or will be playing next year college baseball from one group of kids inner city kids we have 14 kids playing college baseball now look at under seven percent of high school baseball players get to play in college we have 14 kids from that group that are playing college baseball nine of them are playing at the division one level inner city kids all multi-sport athletes like monet my son they played three sports all the way through high school didn't specialize when it bucked that trend. And, you know, Monet's down at Hampton now. She's doing really well playing division one softball. My son just committed to Princeton to play baseball and without specializing and without joining some super elite mega all-star showcase team that cost five, $10,000 a year. We were able to do this. We were able to, we figured out how to do it and, and a better way to target schools for each kid and, and create portfolios for each kid and, and, and narrow down where who we want to target and get those kids in front of those coaches and it's and it's been unbelievable but this is an anomaly that every team i have isn't like this in fact i have a 12 year old 11 year old team now who are going to produce probably one of the best soccer teams if not the best soccer team we've ever had the majority of those kids like soccer better than baseball whereas this team the majority of the kids like baseball but in 2011, now remember, I said, we keep the same roster together for all three sports. When every other club has tryouts, individual tryouts for each sport, and they pick the best kids for each sport. And in 2011, with most of our kids, two-thirds of our kids playing a year up, our Monarchs team, this is Monet's group, 
Our Monarchs team won the City A-League Championship in baseball, basketball, outdoor soccer, and indoor soccer. Same roster, four sports, four city championships. You know, and, and I think right there, I think we proved that we could compete if the kids were given the opportunity. You know, it's unprecedented. I mean, nobody does that many sports anymore, so I don't think anyone will ever top that. Um, yeah, that's the beauty of cross-training. I mean, that's yeah. something that went out the window a long time ago, like you said. But, you know, there's obviously the benefit of understanding how to navigate different fields, um, especially for outfielders. Playing soccer is probably a gold mine from a training perspective. And from the mental side, too, you know, like we teach our kids how to compete. And one of the things we do is like each opponent is different. It's never the same. From an early age, I would go out and film another team we were going to be playing. I would go to one of their games and film their game. And then I would make two DVDs, one for of their offense, one of their defense. Just take basketball, for an example. And we would sit down as a team and we would watch this team. First thing we would worry about is our defense. And we would watch them play every possession of the game, and we would figure out their trends, what they do, where are their strengths. All right, so how can we neutralize those strengths? And we would come up with different defenses, just hybrid defenses we would make up based on the other team's strengths to stop them. And then we would look at what they do or defensively, and we would say, well, how can we exploit that? And we would run different offenses every time based on what the other team does. You know, no set formula. And we would say, oh, this is the weakest link on their team. And we would flood that area and we would get wide open shots every time. And we would double team their best dribbler. So he had to give the ball up. We'd take away their best shooter and we would leave their worst shooter open. So it's not, seems like it's not fair. It's a little overkill, but it's teaching them to play chess, not checkers. And in baseball, that's where we're lacking. And especially in AAU basketball and baseball, Kids aren't taught the inside game anymore. They're just out there showcasing their skills. And Phil Martelli, who coached St. Joe's for all those years, um, actually said to me one time that, you know, he said, there's no one left that knows how to play the game anymore. They're just out there playing a million games and tournaments and not being taught. And he gets very few kids he gets to recruit in the city because they don't really know the game. Um, At 11 years old, when kids start throwing breaking pitches, our kids have been, were stealing signs. They sit together on a bench and they steal the other coach's signs. And I hear them from third base coaching box get sending their code words out to the batter. So we know pretty much from the time they were 11 on, we've known every pitch that was coming at the plate. And it gives you a little bit of an advantage when you know what pitch, which pitch is coming. You know, And we always say that like all the good stuff happens between pitches. Like when a coach screams at the kid on second base, get a better secondary lead our guys automatically know they're going to do an inside pick move there because the kid's going to be super aggressive on his secondary. And we pick them. Like, it's empathy. Empathy is – everybody confuses empathy with sympathy. Empathy is understanding what the other person is thinking and feeling. Right. Right? So we would empathize with that kid on second base and know that he just got yelled at by his coach and he wants to impress his coach and he doesn't want to get yelled at again. So he takes a big aggressive secondary lead and we pick him off. And then when he's running back to the dugout with his head down, then we can sympathize with him. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that primarily because I've probably been that runner. I've also been that pitcher that made that pickoff move. But the mentality that you just mentioned is something that never really crossed my mind. I like it. And, and we know who to pick on. Like we know automatically like the aggressive guys at the top of the order are pickable and the runner for the catcher, the courtesy runner off the bench. You know, on the bench for a reason in most cases. So just little things like that. We think the game. We teach the kids to think the game. And that's why we stand out. When we go to a college team camp, we identify a college team camp to go to, and there might be eight teams there. We stand out. I mean, not only because of our pigment, but because of the way we play the game as a team, you know. And it's just one of the baseball coaches said to me, college coaches said to me one time, he says, when I'm really, if I have a multi, he said he loves multi-sport athletes. He says, when I have a kid I'm really interested in and thinking about giving substantial money to, he says, I'll go watch him play his second sport. Because mm. I want to see how he acts when he's not the best player on the floor or on the field or on the court, mm-hmm. you know, and see how he acts then. And it tells him a lot about his character. And that's what we have. I mean, Everybody gets respect. Everybody's good at something and contributes in, in their own way. And everybody respects each other for that. And 
you know, and that's why it's, it's just such a different feel. It's, it's so much fun playing with kids like that, that you're close with and that understand you. Yeah. I mean, it seems like the constant here is their character. There's a courage that you're trying to instill in these kids. And I wanted to go back to the barnstorming tour for a second, because I know that you stopped by and saw John Lewis, the congressman from Alabama, talk about courage. He stood by MLK's side in Selma on Bloody Sunday. Were the kids able to wrap their heads around what he went through and the grace with which he approaches every day as a result of it? Okay, so this tour, like I said, we were on the road for 20 days, and yeah. the majority of it was civil rights stuff. And then once we left the Deep South, we headed north. We went to Fenway. We, Mo, Mo and the whole team were out there on the pitcher's mound. Mo threw out the first pitch to Dustin Pedroia. They, Shane Victorino took him in the locker room. We got to go inside the Green Monster. We went to Yankee Stadium. They rolled out the red carpet for us. We were at MLB Network doing live interviews on MLB Network and playing wiffle ball with with. Harold Reynolds and Mark DeRosa and those guys. And we went to major league games. We went to minor league games. We played a ton of games. And you asked them when the tour was over, what was the highlight of the tour? Every single one of them said, meeting John Lewis. Wow. Because we had, like I said, we watched every documentary, right? And we read up on everything. And John Lewis was there at Selma. He was on the Freedom Rides. He got beat up on the Freedom Rides. And he's at the March on Washington. You know, he was everywhere. He's like a rock star to these kids after that six months of studying. And the other thing was, one of the main messages I, I taught and hammered home to the kids during our study sessions was that, listen, just because laws change doesn't mean that people's attitudes change. And then the first night on the tour, hours after we left, the shooting in Charleston happened at the church in Charleston. And we didn't know about it till the next morning because we had no electronics. And we got to see John Lewis that morning, still that raw emotion. In fact, we, I think we were going to meet the president, which was Obama at the time. Mm-hmm. And that got changed because of the shooting, the Charleston shooting. But we got John Lewis's raw emotions and take on that. It was incredible. I mean, that man is just legendary. And that was the highlight, the talk he gave the kids in that. It was just, that was the highlight of the tour for every one of the kids. And we did all that other fun, great stuff and met major leaguers and got to go into locker rooms, but that was the highlight for them. Well, I think that's a testament to you as a teacher, having that background and the context in which John, you know, has operated throughout his life, reminds these kids that the history of our country's race relations isn't pretty, but it is important to be educated on, right? Oh, it's, it's the, the most important thing we can do in this country is to teach the real history of this country, not the whitewashed history, you know what I mean? Like, it, the history is written by the victor, so you're getting one side of it. I had no idea. I mean, I grew up in Philadelphia. I was alive during this civil rights movement. I was alive for Bloody Sunday. I was alive for the, the, the bombing in Birmingham where the four little girls were killed. And I never heard a word about any of it. Mm. Not a word. It wasn't taught in the school. It wasn't talked about at home. Nobody wasn't talked about in the neighborhood. It was like it didn't affect us. So it didn't exist, you know, in our world. And we, it just to have that understanding, like people just fly off the handle. They don't have any experience or knowledge, but that doesn't stop them from having a strong opinion. And you see that, especially with social media, and especially yeah. with this, like telling kids that back then, stressing to them that people's attitudes don't change and that there's a lot of underlying issues still there. I mean, today, you don't even have to tell them that because of the, the I feel like you remember when in, in Ghostbusters where the EPA guy releases all the ghosts out of the containment unit? Well, that's Trump. He's let all those ghosts out. And it's up to these kids and the next generation and their next administration is try to, to get these ghosts back in that box. Yeah. They get it. They really get it. That's a really good analogy. And that fight for equality, you know, is something that's going on in different arenas these days. And it seemed as though... Um, gender equality is something that's, you know, in the fore at this point. Is Monet's story as a girl in a boys' league kind of representative of this generation's fight for equality in the same way that 
Jackie Robinson was a black man in a white man's league fighting for equality? Uh, in, in certain ways, but I think it's different because you had an entire population of baseball players that were good enough to play in the major leagues and were being held out. Hmm. You know, girls are allowed to play Little League, although I think it applies more to Maria Pepe, who was the first girl who wasn't allowed to play Little League back in 1972. And then the court case went through and they had to allow girls, so they formed a softball league kind of like separate but equal, which isn't equal. But I think what Mo is, Mo's just shows, I think it just showed that and inspired girls to say that you can do this. I mean, the major leagues are open to girls. The reality of it is physically, girls aren't at that level, aren't able to really compete. Not only, you know, there might be one or two girls that can compete at that level, but as of now, we haven't really seen them. That doesn't mean girls shouldn't be playing baseball, you know? I mean, there are no girls in the MLS, no women in the MLS, but they have their own great league and they have their own national team. There's no reason why there shouldn't be baseball for girls, why it has to be softball. Although I really, I enjoy watching college softball more than I like watching college baseball. Um, <laughs> I think it's exciting. I think those girls are unbelievable. But they could be playing baseball. You know, why they had a different sport. You know, you call it softball. The ball's not soft for one thing. I don't get it. But I just feel like Mo, her biggest contribution was inspiring younger girls to chase their dreams and then not be told you can't do something. And I tell you, as far as the gender equality, you know, the, the biggest issue right now is with the U.S. women's soccer team. Mm-hmm. And that's Monet's favorite team in the world is that U.S. women's team. And she is 100% behind their fight for, you know, for equal pay, yeah. uh, which they absolutely deserve. Very cool. All right. Well, I want to take two seconds to cut to a segment that we do every episode. It's going to add some levity to the conversation. It's usually a bunch of fun. It's called the takes and fakes trivia segment. Are you into it? Yeah, sure. Cool. All right. So it's three questions. We'll fly through them. First question, what is the highest rated water ice in South Philly? Uh, I think most people will tell you John's water ice at, at 7th and Christian is the one that South Philly people will tell you that one. And they're the ones you have to listen to. <laughs> it is Italian ice, technically. You know, otherwise known as water ice, W-O-O-D-E-R. I know, man. I went to college in Pennsylvania and I had no idea what people were talking about for the first month I was there. (laughs) I also had John's at number one, followed by Fred's and Hecker's Deli. I don't know Hecker's Deli. I'll have to check it out. All right. Miss Moochie's Snack Shack at Anderson Yards, our baseball field, also has some pretty good water ice. Oh, shout out to Miss Moochie's. Yeah. (laughs) Question two. Monet was the first girl in the Little League World Series to throw a shutout. What was the name of the other girl playing in the tournament in 2014? Oh, she's from Canada. It's been five years. <laughs> if it was multiple choice, I would get it, but I can't remember. Uh, you're right that she's from Canada. Her name's Emma March. Yeah, Emma March. There you go. And the final question of the Takes and Fakes trivia game The Philadelphia Phillies had another more colloquial name until 1890 when they officially became the Phillies. What was the other name they went by? I don't know. The Quakers. I did not know that. So they were part of the 10,000 losses. Yeah. The Phillies are the losingest franchise in all of pro sports. Right. Can you imagine how many names are part of those however many losses? Oh, I know. (laughs) there are bright spots along the way i'm sure there are a couple (laughs) so another thing that i wanted to talk to you about because i know it's something that's that you're passionate about obviously is major league baseball and why they've continued to fund academies in places like the dominican republic rather than investing in american academies like the monarchs Yeah, so this has been an issue for a long time with me. I've been fighting for and arguing about. And the number one argument would be this from a major league club. It's not MLB investing in the academies. It's the individual clubs. And their argument would be this. Why would we spend all our money, time, and resources developing this kid here in Philadelphia 
and get him to the top level, and then the Atlanta Braves draft him. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. It's from a business side. It would be stupid to do that if that were the way it was, it was set up. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the Dominican Republic, those kids are not subjected to the draft. You can go in, you find a kid that's already playing baseball at 15 years old. As soon as he turns 16, you can sign him, you put him in your academy, and he's yours. But my argument has always been this. If, if it was mandated by MLB, Every club has an academy here, and this is what it's going to look like. This is how big it's going to be. This is how many kids you're going to serve, and this is what the structure is going to be, and this is the curriculum. And every club had at least one of those academies. Now, every team has scouts in every city in the country. Everyone has a scout in every area. Mm -hmm. So your scouts would have access to all 30 academies, and they can be involved in the instruction as well with the kids in each academy. So now – Come draft time, you have a whole new, brand new pool of talent on top of the talent pool that was already there in the DR and in the states and the suburbs. You have a whole new, not only that, but unlike the Dominican Republic, where those kids go to the highest bidder and only the, well, the biggest funded clubs get the top talent, you would have a totally, completely fair 130th share of the market here of this new talent pool. Hmm. And on top of that, you could do what Major League Soccer does and have what they call HGA's uh, homegrown athletes. If this kid grew up in your academy, you have the first right to him. Like you can do that for two players a year or whatever, and whatever they're rated as, that would cost you that draft pick. But you would have the rights to those kids. But the issue is all you have to do to really find out what the actual problem is, is look at who runs those academies and those programs in this city. Like there are academies. In fact, I run the Philadelphia Academy, um, the Phillies Academy, and there are about 10 academies across the country in Puerto Rico. But to see the biggest difference and disparity, all you have to do is look at who runs those, who's in charge of those academies, Mm -hmm. all right? The ones here are run by community relations and public relations. So the goal is, Community relations is to what's going to look like on our website. Take all these pictures. Look what we're doing. It results in a lot of one-off events where you can talk about how great you are and the lives you're changing um, for that two hours you spent there on a Saturday. You don't see any stories or social media posts about the Dominican academies because their focus is on player development only, period. That's run by the scouting department and player development department. That's it. One of the other problems is if you're going to do that here and you're going to tap into that talent pool that's undeveloped here, you have to develop it from a young age. In the DR, those kids are playing already and you're grabbing them at 14, 15 years old and following them and then signing them at 16. Mm -hmm. If you're going to do that here, you need to start at five and six years old and you're not going to see the fruits of that labor for 12 years. And uh, I don't think a lot of owners want to make that investment. Although I don't, I think they're pretty short-sighted and their main demographic is the baby boomer generation, which is old white guys now. I'm the tail end of that baby boomer generation. You know, that, that demographic is going to be gone. Mm-hmm. You need to start going after these other groups now. I mean, and just because the TV money's there now doesn't mean it ain't broke. Mm-hmm. I, I just feel like they're short-sighted in that. And MLB, like I said, MLB can't be the only answer. I mean, They can put up money and things like that, but the biggest need is in experienced people to get programs started. It doesn't cost a lot of money and doesn't take a lot of time. You could go into a school, recruit 48 six-year-olds and run a four-team league. Four hours a week is all it would take to do that. And it would for you for full uniforms, it would cost 35 bucks a kid maximum, including baseballs and bats. 35 bucks a kid, and every kid can afford that and will pay that. Mm-hmm. Where the money's needed is when they get older and they need, you know, where the biggest disparity is, is kids getting in front of college coaches and showcases and tournaments and team and college camps and things like that. That's where the expense is because college coaches, except with the exception of a couple, are not coming into these areas to search for players. They're going to the easiest thing they can do. They go to a showcase where there are 200 kids, you know, and, and, 30 other colleges or 50 other colleges and they get to see those kids perform, but they're only the kids that can afford it. 
right. to be there. And some of these are $1,000 a kid to yeah. go to a two-day showcase, yeah. plus hotel and travel costs. Mm-hmm. So it's really expensive at that level. But to get to that level is, is where we need the human resources, the experienced people that know how to, to start a program and to run a program and, and instruct the kids and develop them. And MLB can certainly help in that regard, but it's, it can't be put on their shoulders. Right. Now, have you spoken to college coaches about the fact that inner city kids can get admitted to their colleges and get financial aid rather than scholarships? Because that seems like something that more inner city families should be aware of, right? Oh, no. The, trust me, the college coaches know that better than anyone. The greatest thing to them is to get a kid that can go on full financial aid and they don't have to use any scholarship money because right. people don't understand that you're spending thousands and thousands of dollars every year to get your kid a college scholarship for baseball. There just aren't any. I mean, if he's great, he's going to get 25% max. That's all he's going to get. I mean, Bryce Harper was offered 70%. Bryce Harper, right? I mean, most people don't know that there are 11.7 scholarships per D1 program, you know, divide around through 30 people, and there's 35 kids on the roster. It's just not there. And unless you're a stud middle infielder or a stud pitcher, you're not really getting that money. You're going to get a small, small slice of it. And any way those coaches can save that money is a big bonus to them. So, yeah, they're wide open to it. It's just that the kids aren't being developed to get to that level. I mean, the, the suburban model is what we need to bring into the city. Mm-hmm. Other than, you know, it gets a little off track when it gets to the high school ages. But the development model from young age from T-ball on up is what we need to have in the inner city. Just if you give those kids, and we've proven this, and we have the blueprint, if you give those kids the same opportunities from the young age, they're going to accomplish the same, if not more. When I say if not more, because kids that don't have a lot are are hungrier. Mm -hmm. It's the reason why the biggest funded your biggest pool of soccer talent in the world can't beat Trinidad and Tobago when it counts because it's a different kid. And I've said this all along. I mean, soccer is just as bad, if not worse, from the pay-to-play model. And they're only getting, they're developing, you know, this is what happens. They develop, they spend all their billion dollars developing mediocre rich kids, suburban rich kids. Mm-hmm. And now we get it. They're highly skilled. They have the skill, but when they get on the field and there's that 50, 50 ball between our kid and the kid from Sao Paulo who grew up kicking rocks barefoot, who's going to win that ball. I mean, and it's obvious it's shown and I don't understand why they don't wake up. If I'm running any U S sports program, U S gymnastics, track and field, soccer, whatever, I'm in the inner cities because that's where the talent and the hungry talent is, but you need to invest in it to make it happen. And the the lazy way is to just, well, we're going to $10,000 a year for the kids to play in the program. And they're the kids we're going to draw from. And somewhere along the line in the last 15 years, every youth soccer coach is paid now. Yeah. They have to be paid. And I don't get it. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it's laziness or greediness. It's both. You know, when you, you come out, you don't beat Trinidad and Tobago and you don't make the World Cup. When you have more kids playing soccer than any other country in the world and you have the biggest budget for soccer than any other country in the world, like Connecticut should beat Trinidad and Tobago. You know what I mean? Or a state team from Connecticut should beat them just because of resources and population. Yeah. But it's, a, it's so glaring. They, but I really believe they just don't understand the problem. They just don't. No. Very possible. I mean, there's a lot of that in baseball too. Of course. There is an argument for dilution of talent, but when you've got 300 million plus people in the country, there's plenty of talent to go around. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, and you keep relying, the lazy part is falling back on the old tired stereotypes. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, kids aren't going to, black kids in the inner city aren't going to, don't like baseball. Well, then how come every black kid in the suburbs plays baseball? You move to the city, your DNA changes. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's just not available to them. It's just right. not available to the kids. There's no baseball program there for them to play. So how do you expect them to play? And then they say, well, yeah, the kids see it. You know, there are more scholarships for football, and it's a quicker route to the pros through football and basketball. It's like you're telling me a five-year-old kid is not playing baseball because 
it's an easier route to the pros through basketball and football. Like he's planning for his future at five years old. It just makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> if it was lacrosse, if it's gymnastics, whatever the sport, if it's polo, swimming, whatever it is, if it's available and it's fun, the kids are going to play it and they're going to love it. Now, we do three sports. And just to show you how wrong those stereotypes are, if you rank the three sports by popularity with our thousand kids that have played in, through our program, mm -hmm. it would probably rank baseball and soccer would be close for first and basketball would trail in third place by a lot. And that's the thing. And you can't teach kids to be six, eight. I mean, I've had, I had Dion waiters in our program. I had Rasul Butler. I didn't teach Rasul to be six, eight. I didn't teach Dion to jump through the ceiling, but there are opportunities for kids in baseball to play. There are a lot of different levels in college. And so us, our, our goal from day one is you're going to graduate from college, whether you play in college or not, you're going to graduate. And if you come to our field, You'll see we had the high baseline fences because there's a row houses around. And on those fences, right now we have, I think it's 25, four foot by four foot signs up there. If you start in T-ball in our program and go on to graduate from college, whether you play or not, if you graduate from college, you get a sign up on the fence. It has your name, wow. your school logo, the school you graduated from, and the year. If you get wow. a master's degree, you get a smaller sign underneath. We've got our first doctorate coming up this year. And that's there facing the field for all the younger kids to see and aspire to. That's so cool, especially because it's not a celebration of their athletic accolades, but more so the ultimate goal here is graduating from college and setting yep. yourself up for success down the line and being a worldly person rather than somebody that's got tunnel vision on one sport. To me, the greatest satisfaction I get out, out of this is not you know, seeing Dion in the NBA or, or we have uh, Darius Madison playing. He was a kid that grew up across the street from the rec center with his grandmother. There's a kid never would have saw a soccer ball in his life, would have gotten in trouble personality-wise, would have wound up in trouble in South Philly. He took the soccer from an early age. We got him into a great high school. He was high school American, won the NCAAs at UVA, drafted by Toronto FC in 2016, and now playing professionally in Australia. And when he's home, he coaches our younger kids. Wow. You know, that's what it's about. And I have at least a dozen kids now whose parents I coached in T-ball. And to see them come back, kids that didn't have fathers in their lives, come back and just being such great dads to their kids and getting them involved and being there. To me, that's it. That's the whole thing. You're creating a better society through that. Give by, just by giving opportunity. It's not me. It's not the other coaches. Our job is to just give opportunity. And this, what the kids do, it is on them. So all these accomplishments are the kids, and they deserve all the credit in the world for taking advantage of the opportunities that are given to them. Yeah. That they deserve, and frankly, in my opinion, every kid deserves the same opportunity. You know, And what we have to do to get that is on us, to give them that opportunity. But every kid deserves to have that opportunity. I agree. How can our listeners help you continue to even the score and provide that opportunity to kids in inner cities? Well, I mean, like I said, obviously with our older kids, financially, you know, money always helps with that. But I would rather see somebody who gets inspired by this story and wants to do something like this on their own. I mean, just give them my cell number, give them my email address, have them get in contact with me, and I will guide them through the whole process. I've made all the mistakes you can make, I can save you those. I can streamline the, the process for you. And that's what our biggest need is in human resources, people that know. You can't expect a community to start and run something that they know nothing about. Right now, I have dads that didn't know anything about baseball or didn't know anything about soccer who are now educated in it, been around it, and are coaching teams on their own now and are very good coaches, you know, better than I am because they've been given the opportunity. We send them to coaching classes and then they hang around practice and we have discussions all the time and they've adopted the sport and that's how you build a community. So when I'm gone, there's sustainability. Mm. I love hearing that, man. Steve, you've reminded me that coaches can be more than coaches and you're a role model and a teacher as well. So thank you very much for hanging out with us we really, really appreciate your time. Is there anything else you want to tell our listeners while you got a chance? No, just 
understand the problem before you have an opinion on it, you know, mm. and without actual experience, don't listen to other people, do your research, find out. And I'm telling you, don't believe the stereotypes. Kids all deserve opportunity. And I feel like it's our job to make sure that kids get those opportunities and stop blaming the wrong people for them not having opportunities. And that's like I was saying earlier about everyone. If everyone went through the six month course on the civil rights movement that we did, they'd have a whole different outlook on society today, understand how we got to this point and what fuels those fires. Yeah. And like you said earlier, exposure is so yeah. important. Yeah. Get out, travel, meet people, get out of your bubble. It's like, it's like a rabbit in a hole. The rabbit stays in his hole. The sky's only this big to him, as big as the hole. If he pops his head out, the whole world opens up. So pop your head out. Make sure your kids pop their heads out and get out. Um, there you go. That's the best thing you could do for them. And if they do pop their heads out, where can they find the Monarch's endeavors on social media? AndersonMonarchs.org, A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N, Monarchs.org, at AndersonMonarch on Twitter. Facebook, we have a Facebook page too, Anderson Monarchs Facebook page. And my number, 215-868-9137. That's my cell number. Feel free to call me, Steve Band or S. Bandura at AndersonMonarchs.org. S. Bandura, B-A-N-D-U-R-A, at AndersonMonarchs.org. That's very generous of you, man. Thank you. And to our listeners, the Give Back Gang, thank you again. Don't forget to download and subscribe as well as leave a review of the Give Back Sports Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you access your free podcast content. Find us on Facebook at Give Back Podcasts, G-I-V-B-K always. On Twitter at Give Back Podcasts, on our website, giveback.com, and stay tuned for episode 17. Until then, remember, we've all got soul in our step and brilliance to bestow. Take a minute today to do something that improves tomorrow. Bye for now. Bye.